The following message is entitled, Hourglass Mercy Power Unleashed, Part 7. This message was given during the morning service on November 20, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. We continue the series I've entitled Hourglass Mercy Power Unleashed. I call it Hourglasses. We'll review again because it is a there's a time deadline on mercy towards the lost and towards believers. We're continuing in this middle Sunday of the month in First Timothy chapter one, verse two. Let's read the introduction again from verses one to two of First Timothy one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We're focusing again on these three aspects of power. Grace and mercy are the the furnaces of divine power that work to save and to sanctify. And then the result, the primary result that I have power in my life is peace. This This is foundational. If I lack peace, which the opposite is living in fear, then I am powerless. The evidence that one, at least from this text, that one is growing in power, in grace power and mercy power, is peace replacing fear. In our note sheet, for those in the auditorium, we'll start off with the introduction, why do we need Christ's mercy? And I'll let Puritan John Flavel uh, tell us brilliantly in his book, The Fountain of Life, why believers need to trust daily in God's mercy. He says this, and I quote, Jesus Christ, being fitted with a body and authorized by the commission from the Father, set himself apart for the work of our salvation. Christ's consecration as a sacrifice implies the dreadfulness of the breach which our sin has made. Breach between us and God. A breach is like a break in a wall, that type of thing. The magnitude of the remedy in Christ shows the greatness of our wound our sin wound. He continues, So he offered himself, Christ did, in pure and perfect holiness. He hung upon the tree as a curse in our place. He sanctified himself to die in our place. Lord, condemnation was yours, that justification might be mine. Agony was yours, that victory would be mine. Pain was yours, and ease mine. The curse, yours, but the blessing is mine. He continues. Did he give all for us? Yes. Shall we do nothing for him? What is a Christian but a wholly dedicated thing to the Lord? But it is not I, but Christ in me. It is not my will, but Christ's. O wretched idol, myself, be wholly expelled And may Christ be wholly put in the room of my heart. End quote. That's mercy. Mercy that he died for us. Mercy that he empowers us to live for him. This is the point that Flavel was making. Is that we live under his power and mercy. It's all him. It's none of us. So as we return to 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 2 again today, we see once again this morning that Paul wants us to be quite sure at the very beginning, that the Christian life cannot be lived in our own power. So that's the answer to the question under the introduction on the blank lines. Above the Paul is quite clear statement. Above that, 
above that on the blank lines under the, under the introduction. Paul wants us to know that the Christian life cannot be lived in our power. You cannot live the Christian life in our power. We cannot in our power, but in the power of Christ, as Flavel just pointed out. And the second line under the introduction statement, the question, Christ alone saved us and Christ alone sanctifies us. Christ alone saved us, Christ alone sanctifies us. This is why we need Christ's mercy. Mercy, power, to live the Christian life. Only Christ can save and sanctify. Underneath that, Paul is quite clear in his introduction then and here in 1 Timothy 1. Fill in the blanks. No church survives or flourishes in its own power. No church survives or flourishes in its own power. And this is an epistle on how local churches are to operate. That's why I say church. You all understand that? 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are three epistles on how to operate a church. That's the title at the top of your note sheet, the kind of church God wants. These are blueprints, these three epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, on how to run a local church. So no church survives or flourishes in its own power. This is Paul's point right off at the beginning here. Because no Christian survives or flourishes in its own power. Because no Christian survives or flourishes in his own power. What is a local church? A congregation of professed believers. The church's power is only as good as the individual's power, collectively. It's obvious, right? If all professed believers in a local church are powerless, then the church is powerless. So the church is only as good as the believers who are walking in power. We had no power to save ourselves, and we have no power to sanctify ourselves. So you can write that under that statement. Paul is quite clear. We can't sanctify ourselves. Our church is only as good as the individuals. The church here is only as good as the individuals within it who are walking in power. That's Paul's point. Before he gets into the whole issue here of the first priority of a local church in verses 3 to 20, he wants to make this quite plain to us. This is not just some good morning statement in verse 2. He says, grace, mercy, and peace come only from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And these are power terms. They are not just aphorisms of spirituality. Bless you, which means nothing. Grace be to you. That's not what this is. He's itemizing the engine of a local church, the power source. And we tend to forget this because we realize Christ alone saved us, but then we think we have to start operating ourselves to empower ourselves to live for him after we're saved. Now, this idea that Paul is beginning with here that we've been talking about is this powerhouse that comes from God, grace and mercy. This has profound implications for believers, local churches, and biblical Christianity as a whole. Programs won't cause a church to spiritually grow. They don't. There's no power in that. Modern leadership positions will not cause a church to spiritually grow. Positions such as youth or music leadership positions, which are mandatory in most churches, not mentioned in the Bible, 
There's no power in them. We know that in a secular society, marketing can cause a corporation to grow numerically. I was in marketing as an art director many years ago, and a branch of marketing doing the advertising aspect for the marketing department. And marketing works. You can get companies to grow numerically through marketing. Companies can grow financially through marketing. And there are many churches that pursue marketing so that they will grow. And marketing works for churches. Marketing works for churches, just like it does corporations. You can get any church to grow potentially through good marketing, financially and numerically. You can get growth. It is possible. But the power of God is not needed to grow a corporation, is it? It's marketing. You don't need power from God to make a corporation grow, right? And you don't need the power of God to make a church grow numerically or financially through marketing. It's the same as a corporation. You have to realize that many heretical churches in our country are growing exponentially, numerically, and financially. Heretical. Is God behind heresy? Does he support heresy? No. So, obviously, it is possible to have numerical and financial growth without the power of God. But contrary to such false ideas in the church today, Paul isn't talking about finances and numbers here in verse 2. In fact, he never mentions numbers or money at all in all three of these epistles on how to operate a church. Isn't that interesting? Numbers and money, which are so important to the church today, are not even mentioned in these blueprints. What Paul's after, obviously, in verse 2 is not numbers, not money, not location. You know the old corporate statement. The three rules of, of corporations for success, you know what they are, right? Location, location, location. I mean, that's what it's all about. That's why Walgreens is going around and tearing down their, like the old one over here on 106, which is landlocked, creating their own building with parking like the 118th Street. They're doing that all over the country because it's all about location, standalone type of ideas. But uh, that's corporations. Paul's not interested in that. He's about growing spiritually. That's why he deals with spiritual commodities in verse 2. Next in your note sheet, the success of a Bible church or biblical church is its spiritual condition, not its man-made agendas and plans. It's a spiritual condition, not its man-made agendas and plans. As I've shared with you many times, Christians reject this, by and large. You can write that under that statement. Christians reject this idea. The success of a biblical church is its spiritual condition, not its man-made agendas and plans. Christians reject this. Now, how can I say that? I'm not saying every Christian. I'm saying, by and large, the flow of the river of the church in, the, in Western civilization rejects this. Two reasons. You don't have to write these down. You can just listen. I don't think you have enough room there for these two reasons. But the one, first reason why the vast majority of churches and Christians and ministries reject this idea that the spiritual condition comes first is because of how believers choose the church they attend. And I'm an expert on that. I've talked to churches and pastors and visitors that come in uh, over the years. And by and large, not every single one, but by and large, I have found that uh, churches come, like visitors in the past, uh, way in the past, have come in and looked for things like uh, 
oh, it's hot in here. I need a church with AC, and I've told you that before. And um, what translation of the Bible do you use? Oh, you don't use King James. Okay, we'll have to find another church. Um, I don't know if I can come back here again. The parking's bad. I need a church with parking. Um, facilities. Um, do you have a lot? I have them call occasionally to church. What are your youth and children ministries? This is what people want. Um, kind of music do you have? That's the big one I've mentioned repeatedly over the years. Uh, some come in here and they can't believe we only sing one hymn, potentially, or don't have contemporary music. Or it just becomes a marriage club. Uh, wow, I need to find a spouse, and your church doesn't give me enough cattle to graze on. I, you know, Hey, you know what? I've kind of looked over that list over the years. Size, facility, parking, safety. Um, social development for young and old. Music and an opportunity to find a spouse. Uh, oh my goodness, a good bar fulfills all those. Really. Even the music, you know, karaoke. You'd really get involved with bar worship there. You don't need the Holy Spirit for any of those. I, boy, you know, again, present company excluded. I, over the years in the past, I can't remember anyone saying I'm desperate to find a church that teaches the Bible. It's uh, not too high on the list, is it? Uh, that's one reason why the Bible Church in America isn't really pursuing spiritual conditions and issues. The second reason, which you know full well in our church, uh, is this. Uh, the reason why the success of a church is its spiritual condition, and this is rejected by most today, is because professed believers do not think the power of God is necessary to live the Christian life. This is really true. Most Christians do not believe the power of God is necessary to be a growing believer or to have a growing church. How would I know that? Well, let me beat that drum again just for 10 seconds. Corporate prayer, the weakest ministry agenda item of a church in Western civilization is this prayer meetings. And what is prayer? Fundamentally and essentially is I can't, you can, I won't, you will. I'm asking you, God, to empower me, to empower us, to change us, right? It's a helplessness. We pray for God to intervene. And if prayer is the weakest part of the church, then believers hold to the idea that divine power is simply not needed to grow that church. And I've said this ad infinitum. Your prayer life is your tell. And if you have very little prayer life going on, you really don't think the power of God is necessary in your Christian life. What other conclusion could we make? Really, right? I mean, correct? Yeah. So those are the two reasons we know that the spiritual condition of a church is not really high on the agenda. So Christians, very few Christians, choose a church for the reasons that Paul's laying out here. He's tapping power in verse 2, and that's what he wants. And then he gets into the issue of the teaching of the word is next in verses 3 to 20. So this is why I think that there's judgment on the church today and there's so little power manifesting in local churches is because the professed believers are looking for something other than prayer and Bible teaching. And secondly, they really fundamentally do not think that you need divine power to live the Christian life. It's true. I've thought hard and long on this, especially in Cook County here. Uh, upwards of 60% of Bible-believing Christians in our Bible-believing churches are former Catholics. 
Catholicism is the ultimate Christian false religion that says you don't need prayer, you don't need divine power, all you need is programs. That's all you need. Just do your thing. It's not about transformation, it's about attendance. And it's very easy as a professed believer coming out of that system that one is raised in just to function in a Bible-believing church the same way. I come, I attend, I listen, I read my Bible, I go home, I do my thing. There is no transformation necessary. It's driven so much by the false religion mentality that Catholicism has put upon the church, especially in Cook County. But as I just read with John Flavel, only Christ can bring a transformation to the human heart and that's what he's trying to get through to us here there are very few churches ours excluded certainly we hold to this but there are very few churches that would use verse 2 as the foundation of a local church's success they just wouldn't do it the idea is if we want to grow spiritually we must seek grace mercy and peace from Christ and in verse 2 these are the only three powers from God needed to grow a church and to grow a believer so we have to tap into these three and know how to manifest grace power, how to manifest mercy power. And if we want grace, mercy, and peace manifested in the believers of our local church, any local church, we have to pray for these constantly in massive spiritual priority prayers corporately as churches together. It doesn't happen. We teach it here, but it doesn't happen. So in your note sheet, you can see the outline at the bottom really progresses far down the line because we're deep into this series. And you can peruse the first, the first eight principles that we've learned on the hourglass of mercy. They're all listed there for you. And I've already taught them. We're on number nine. That's why it's a little bigger and bold-faced. So let's go right to that one. Lesson number nine this morning. How does mercy power sanctify the believer? Last Sunday, I taught you the first way. It's listed right there for you. The bottom of the note sheet, the last three lines. Mercy power sanctifies the believer first when the believer is trusting God's power to transform him, even though he still, still sins terribly. And the idea is, I am so thankful that he spared me from hell I don't want to keep doing these sins. Can you lock into that principle? I'm so thankful for his mercy sparing me from hell, it motivates me and empowers me to resist sin. Because of that thankfulness of the mercy of God sparing from hell, the believer doesn't want to live with lack of assurance. Lack of assurance comes when we rebel. Lack of assurance is where I start to think, maybe I'm not saved. And then the terrors of hell overcome us. That's why the principle is rephrased, the last line on the front side. This is why living by mercy defeats licentiousness as one grows in faith. It's basically this. A rebel believer who's constantly living in sin without any concern, hardness of heart, boredom with the Christian life, as we'll see on Thursday as we return to the Old Testament concept of worship versus boredom, that we're learning from the psalmist, um, doesn't really repent, doesn't do it correctly. Sin is just rolling upon the believer worse and worse incrementally like a frog in a kettle. As the heat is turned up of one's rebellious sin, it's cooking the person spiritually. This person isn't afraid of hell. They're not grateful that they've been spared hell. This is how this works. 
Mercy transforms us by such gratitude and relief that I'm not going to hell because I'm so afraid of it that it makes me want to live in a way that gives me growing assurance of salvation. I don't like and want holy terror, the feeling that I may not be truly saved. That's what we learned last Sunday. A second way that mercy power sanctifies on the back side of your note sheet then, the second way is this. Mercy power sanctifies the believer secondly when the believer is trusting God not to cast him off when he fails. I need to not only thank God for his mercy sparing me from hell, which makes me more obedient, but number two here, mercy power sanctifies the believer secondly when the believer is trusting God not to cast him off when he fails. When a believer comes to think that God has cast him off, I'm not talking about living in rebellion and losing assurance. That's not what casting off means. And if you need to write that down under number two, make sure you understand loss of assurance is divine chastisement. God doesn't do evil stuff. If he strips us of assurance, that's a good thing. Loss of assurance is divine chastisement. That's not what casting off means here. Casting off, write it down, means God has abandoned me. I believe God has abandoned me. You do understand when you lose assurance of salvation, that's not God abandoning you. It's God chastising you. How could he chastise you if he abandoned you, right? If he chastises us, that's, that's love from a negative point of view. Parents do this. We encourage with proactive principles, do this, and we, we encourage and chastise negatively. If you don't do this, you'll be chastised. So, Laws of assurance is divine chastisement. That's not casting off. Casting off is believing God has abandoned me. This is really fundamental to Christians today. This is how they are. They believe God has abandoned them. Nobody would ever say that. It's a dirty little secret down deep inside. And maybe we even wouldn't say it to ourselves. We would say, oh, I, I don't believe God's abandoned me. I don't know what John's talking about. I, I've never believed that. Well, wait a minute now. I've heard more than a few Christians saying, well, I pray, but it does no good. It's God abandoning us. This is fundamental legalism. And that's the next statement underneath. Living by mercy defeats legalism. Mercy is, he spared me when I was a hell-bound sinner. Why would he leave me now that I'm his child? Spared when I was in war against him, why would he leave me now? Legalism says, yes, he spared me. Here comes legalism. But if I don't perform, he'll cast me off. It destroys the power of mercy. There is no power in this type of thinking. It's cowering continuously under the threat of condemnation when we've already been saved. And this is why, fundamentally, why we don't pray. This is why we don't pray. We don't believe it works. We don't believe it works. That's why we don't pray. You just have to spend a few minutes a day praying. You don't believe it works. 
This is so essentially foundational to how we wreck our lives. And we don't believe it works because we believe God has walked away. Right? Um, am I wrong here? Or could we think of another righteous reason? Well, there's a righteous reason why I don't pray every day or pray very little. There's a righteous reason. I'd like to know it, if anyone has that one. A righteous reason why we pray, pray very little or not at all. Does anyone have one that I've missed? It's a good thing to not pray a lot or to pray very little or to pray not at all. It's a good reason. Can't think of it. We don't believe it. This is legalism. We believe that God is an ogre. An ogre is like a monster. You remember the ogre on the bridge with the big club and you had to get pet? It was one of those fables. But anyways, um, he's an ogre. He's constantly ticked off at me. And when I pray, he just folds his arms and turns his back on me. And the evidences of that is that I don't get what I want. Another aspect of legalism, believing that God has cast us off, is we think God is our celestial Santa Claus. He's only there to give me stuff. The Pepsi motto years ago, buy Pepsi, get stuff. It's in the church. It's endemic to legalism. Uh, get God, get stuff. So prayer is basically, I'm, I'm asking for stuff, and when you don't give me stuff, well, then you walked away and can't be bothered. Because if you did bother, you would be giving me my stuff. This is the foundation of atheism. There was a wise guy atheist uh, a few years ago who wrote an article that he statistically tested born-again Christians' answers to prayer and asked them specifically what they were praying for and whether they got what they want. So the atheist assumed that Christian prayer is basically Santa Claus praying. See? He found that like 80 to 90% of the things that born-again Christians uh, asked for were never given. What was his conclusion? His conclusion was God is not there. Case closed. Prayer is a delusional waste of time. And Christians tricked themselves into thinking God is answering. And one of his big arguments for that is how many times Christians pray for healing. And he statistically found out that atheists got healed as much as Christians. And I can't argue that one. There's no statistic that says major disease gets cured more rapidly for believer than for unbeliever. Surgeries work for unbelievers, don't they? Surgeries work for believers. Surgeries don't work sometimes for unbelievers. Surgeries don't work sometimes for believers. So I'm really in trouble, theologically, if prayer for me is simply getting stuff from God. We're to ask him, let your request be made known to God. But ultimately, prayer is lining yourself up with God's will. An atheist can't do that. It's not about getting stuff. But if I have that legalistic attitude, then God's an evil ogre. He's just a monster upstairs, and he just chuckles when we keep asking for the same thing over and over again. The atheist has no understanding that sometimes God withholds the answer because it isn't his will, and other times he's doing it to test our faith and to enhance endurance, as we'll see again tonight with suffering. Legalistic Christians really... They just don't see God as a very loving and sympathetic God. He's a God who's, yeah, he saved me, but, you know. This is why charismatic theology is just running rampant, because they want to feel God there. They want to hear his voice and see him. Why? Faith isn't good enough. Prayer isn't good enough. Every last charismatic that I've ever talked to 
if they're honest and not lying, and a host of them have lied to me in the past, they will admit that prayer and Bible studies simply are not enough. They need to experience God visually and by the ear. Faith is not enough. This is tragic. This is legalism. A legalist doesn't trust the mercy of God. Yes, he saved me, but here comes the legalism. But he's now abandoned me. This is not the God of the Bible. This is not biblical Christianity. Ephesians or Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. This is not the God of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 4. The end of chapter 4 of Hebrews, the writer is really slamming home how only the godly believer is going to trust the mercy of God. Okay? From verses 12 to verses 16, the writer of Hebrews is saying only a godly believer trusts in God's mercy. So did you hear that? Only a godly believer will trust in God's mercy. Starting in verse 12, foundational is the word of God in a believer's life. Hebrews 4 verse 12, for the word of God is living and active. See, so, so the word of God works, active, it's emphatic position. Living and active is the word of God. In other words, is how the Greek reads. Living and active is the word of God. Sharper than any twitch sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Heart is mind. So it's active and it gets into the mind. It's a sword that pierces. It judges and it transforms. This answers everything about the believer who says this. I read my Bible, I don't get anything out of it. The sermons are boring, I don't get anything out of sermons. The problem is not the word of God or the messenger of the word of God. It is you. Okay? Because it is this. There's only two reasons in verse 12 why a professed believer gets nothing out of Bible reading, gets nothing out of sermons. Only two reasons. Number one, they're not saved. There's no spirit using the sword to pierce. Or number two, they're in rebellion. Many a professed believer have come and gone. Too much confrontation, too much Bible in this service. Had enough. But that's what the word of God is supposed to do. It's a sword, folks. It is meant to pierce. A sword is supposed to attack you and me in the mind. Okay? It gets into judgment. Notice the word judge in verse 12. The primary purpose of you and I reading the Bible is to judge and convict. We know that from 2 Timothy 4, that preaching is to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. But in a positive-only mentality of a heretical church system of evangelicalism today, this just doesn't wash. I don't need conviction. I'm okay. I don't need prayer. Everything is all right. This is the way we are today. And then this issue of the word, getting into the mind, brings up verse 13. The and connects it to verse 12. If he can get into your mind, can you hide from God? Can you hide from God if he gets into your mind? No. That's what verse 13 is. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. For all things are open and laid bare. All things what is laid bare? Back to verse 12, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Thoughts refers to inner passions and emotions. Intentions in verse 12 refers to your convictions. 
We can act a certain way at church, but God knows your very passions and your convictions inside your mind. No creature in verse 13, no believer, unbeliever, no one can hide from his sight because he's in there. He's in there. This is an astounding statement. Laid bare. It's a military term. In the Old Testament, Randy goes through the Old Testament. When a king conquers another king, he puts him on the ground, he puts his foot on his neck. It's a sign of submission and defeat. That's what laid bare is right there. Trachea. To put the foot on the trachea. Take by the throat. And literally, with the idea here, military is to bend and slice. To bend down, put foot on neck, and slice. He is cutting open. All things are open and laid bare. He, sl he slices open the mind. So this is reality right here. But if I'm not in a mercy, and I don't trust his mercy, and I'm into sin, I'm licentiousness, or legalism, and I think he's walked away, if I really do think he's walked away, prayer life little, confession little, bored with the word, bored with preaching, then the result is I really don't trust how much God has invaded into my thinking and sees everything. I don't feel him, I don't hear him. What's the big deal? He's watching everything. Verse 14. Here's the application, 14 to 16. Therefore, verse 14, 4, verse 15, therefore, verse 16. Three-verse application, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That is a present active subjunctive verb. Let us hold fast our confession. The subjunctive mood implies doubt. The writer is saying, not every professed believer will hold fast their confession. Let us do this, but there is doubt. And we need to do this continuously. By the way, let us hold fast our confession is not holding on to our salvation. That is assurance of salvation. You don't hang on to your salvation. God hangs on to you. He saved you. You didn't save yourself. This is assurance. Hold fast is a fascinating word. It's krateo. The root of it is actually the, the ninth fruit of the Spirit. Enkretos. Enkretos is the ninth fruit of the Spirit. It is not self-control. It is en, prefix en, back in Galatians 5. It is enkretos. En is in. Kratos is creative power. Empowerment. Empowerment. Not self-control. What is that? I don't even know where they came up with that one. I think some theologian threw a dart at the wall and hit those two words in the English dictionary. Boom. Self. Boom. Control. Okay, that's how we'll define it. It's enkratos, and hold fast right here has that same root, krat et o. Kratos in the Greek comes from the Latin and has made it into the English, direct, direct correspondence from Greek to Latin to English. It's our word kratiation, creation. It is creative power. Let us hold fast. Let us be empowered to hang on to our confession, our assurance. Why? Why do we need assurance of salvation? Verse 15, second application. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, our powerlessness, by the way, not little power, weakness, our powerlessness, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. He knows what it's like to be tempted. So, let's recap up to verse 15. Verse 12, the word is piercing. It should be convicting and judging us in our minds. If it's not, we're in rebellion and we're not saved. 
And a godly believer senses through the word convicting that God is exposing in verse 13. I am exposed continuously to the gaze of a holy God. And this is what drives assurance in verse 14. But if we just stopped with verse 14, we'd be terrorized. He's got his foot on my neck in verse 13. His sword is in my mind in verse 12. This is a, this is a God who is violent. And all he's doing is slaughtering us as his children. No. Because his word convicts and because he's in our minds and sees everything, we rejoice as godly believers. And when he transforms our minds through the word and we rejoice that he sees everything so we want to repent, then our assurance grows. And the result is, in verse 15, he sees our weaknesses when he looks in our minds. Verse 15. And he knows we're tempted just as Jesus was on earth. And he knows what a hard time we have with temptation. So what does it do next? Verse 16. Verse 14, it's assurance grows. Verse 15, God is a sympathetic Lord. And we'll come back to that word sympathy in a moment. And verse 16, it drives us to prayer. The godly Christian is a prayer warrior. Let us draw near with, here it is again, assurance. Come to God to the throne of grace. First power. First power, conduit, grace. Confidence. I taught you back that grace is empowerment that comes through prayer. Prayer is driven by faith. Faith drives prayer. Prayer drives grace empowerment. Because he sees my powerlessness in verse 15, I come to the power source in verse 16, to the throne of grace empowerment, so that we may receive. Receive mercy. There it is. And find what? Grace. Oh, John, why do you spend so much time on 1 Timothy 1 2? It's just a good morning. It's just an introduction. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing to that. Why do you keep adding to verse 2? It's right here in verse 16. Grace and mercy and peace would be the result, of course. But grace and mercy. Notice grace, mercy, grace. And notice the power help to help. There's the power right there. He helps in time of need. What kind of need? Your car breaks down? No. Mm -mm. What are we talking about? Temptation, verse 15. Judgment and conviction in verse 12. Exposure of our wickedness in verse 13. That's where we need power and help. That's why a spiritual church is one that looks for spiritual power. Not numbers, not money. We're looking for transformation. We need help in time of need. This is what mercy does. The legalist doesn't pray in verse 16, doesn't draw near. The legalist isn't after power. He's after running. Because when you're afraid of someone, you take off. He doesn't help me. I don't pray. He doesn't care. He's walked away. Go back to that word sympathy in verse 15. The driving force of his help is this, is this God of sympathy. Sympatheo, to have a fellow feeling with. Uh, it's an amazing, amazing. It's, uh, God has great feeling towards us. See, the God of Catholicism. I've, this is a good question to ask a Catholic sometime. I went to confessional today. And you should ask him this. How does God feel about you? You'll never get an answer to that from a Catholic ever. How does God feel toward me? How would I know? Is he sympathetic towards you? Beats me. 
I just went to the priest. The priest said I was, you know, exonerated. There's no concept of a sympathetic feeling God in legalism. It's all terror. That's why a Catholic, a Catholic recently said to me, um, out of the blue in the back parking lot, therefore you know where I'm referring, you going to heaven? Yeah, I'm going to heaven. He said, are you sure? I said, yeah, I am absolutely sure I'm going to heaven. He laughed and said, how could you possibly be sure? And he walked away. He didn't want an answer. Because he's Catholic. Catholics don't believe you can have assurance to go to heaven. Why? God may strike you down and shove you into the side room of purgatory for a while and really get some kicks out of that. Sympathy. He sympathized with our powerlessness. We're powerless. Weakness is powerless. No power. So when a believer thinks God has stopped loving him or cast him off or walked away, they're legalist. Mercy of God means nothing then in verse 16. I need your mercy. You've withheld hell. The same unconditional withholding of hell. Give me help. Give me help with that mercy. Please, I've sinned so much. Please forgive me. I cast myself upon you and in your infinite mercy would you cleanse and empower me through the sword of the word in verse 12. Legalists don't pray that way. Everything's copacetic. Everything's fine. There's no problem here. God save me. I'm free in Christ. No battle with sin. One last one is 1 Peter 5. And with this we'll conclude. 1 Peter chapter 5. Yeah, I'm getting my chapters right this Sunday, aren't I? 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 6. 1 Peter 5, 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is foundational to faith and trust. As you humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, lower yourself under his lordship. That's another way to interpret humble yourselves in verse 6, under the mighty hand of God. Lower yourself under his lordship. He's absolute master. You don't have a right to do whatever you want. Foundational mark of a rebel Christian is one who does whatever they want with no concern about consequences or repentance. No, we're to humble ourselves. Lower. And while you're humbling yourself, in verse 7, you cast all your fears on him. Anxiety. Care. Anxiety. This is prayer. The legalist doesn't pray. doesn't cast their fears on the Lord. Now, why do you humble yourself and cast? Because he cares. We believe this by faith. There is care. It's an interesting word, care. It's mellow. It's a play on words here. It goes like this in verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he is anxious for you. Cast all your anxiousness on him because he is anxious for you. He's concerned. This is a God of mercy who died for you and saved you from hell. And now as a child of God, he sees we're playing with sin and he's concerned. He's worried with a holy worry. That's what that word means. Continuously, present active indicative, has anxiety and concern for you. We have anxiety over the issues of life. He has concern and anxiety over us. I am of the conclusion, based on verse 7, that we're all just a thin black line away from turning from Christ. Practically, not an apostasy. The heart is constantly growing cold. 
We play with sin and we love it. Why would God who loves you and is merciful not be worried about that? Say, why would he be worried if he can transform us? And this is an interesting thing. Not every rebel does he transform. Doesn't always happen, does it? If they're a true believer, he'll chastise them unto death and he'll transform them in heaven by transforming them up there. But we can pray for fellow believers that are in rebellion and it doesn't seem anything happens. There's a sovereignty to God. He decides whether he will bring revival to a rebel believer or not. What's the criteria for that? I don't know. Well, then what should we do? Just keep praying. The issue in verse 7 is not can God help us. It's whether he will choose to help a rebel. And if we're humbling and casting our anxiety upon him, we do it because we know that he truly does care. And he wants us to be godly and resist Satan in verses 8 and 9. This is what it means to live under his mercy. The legalist has no part of this. We saw last week the licentious believer has no part of this. I'm free in Christ to sin. That's the licentious believer. The legalist says, what good does it do to repent? It doesn't do any good to read the Bible or pray. He's abandoned me. He's walked away. That's such evil. He spared me from hell. Why would he leave me now? But I don't hear him. I don't feel him. We're not hearing and feeling the Christian life. We're faithing it. Trust Christ as you did at conversion. But circumstances have wrecked me. Trust Christ. But the atheist says nothing changes with a Christian through prayer. Trust Christ. He cares. Will he fix the rebel one way or the other? If they're truly saved, he'll either transform them and renew them or he'll take their life. When we see no rebel ever chastised, we know they're not believers. Because he cares. But an apostate, he does not have care for only judgment. So cast in verse 7. This is prayer. Throw unto God continuously. Epirepeto, and it means to just toss a fishing line continuously before the Lord. Everything that is tempting you to be anxious, knowing that God truly cares for you, this will destroy legalism in your life. He'll never, ever leave you. And remember that while you're anxious in verse 7, he still cares. He doesn't just care for the person who has peace and no fear. He cares for the Christian who has peace and at times has fear. It is unconditional care continuously towards us. And we are therefore sober of spirit because we know that he cares and he means business. And we're not to be drunk spiritually. That's what sober spirit means. And we're to be realizing we're in dangerous territory in verses 8 and 9. So, how do I work mercy into my life, that powerhouse? Number one, you're so thankful for his mercy that it makes you not want to sin and be licentious. And number two, you're so thankful for his mercy that it reminds you daily that he will never cast you off or abandon you. Whether you get answers to prayer that you would like to see or not, he can't possibly leave or forsake you because of his mercy. He spared me from hell when I was going there. Why would he abandon his child now? He may chastise us. He may do it very severely for a rebellion, but that's still care. 
Next time, whenever that may be, we'll look at the third and final aspect of mercy power in your note sheet, the issue of gratitude. And then when we're done with that one, we need to test ourselves. Do we, do, do we really live under mercy power? Very interesting test pops up in the New Testament. How do you know if you're really living under the mercy of God? The, the easy and quick and yet profound test takes place among us. This is where we find out whether we really live in mercy. Let's pray. We walk by faith and not by sight, and so as we transition into suffering once again and learn the profound truths tonight of suffering, Lord, we recognize that suffering in our lives lasts a lot longer than we want it to. And this tests our faith and makes it very difficult to trust in your mercy, but we're so helpless, powerless. We cast these burdens upon you in faith, not feeling. And we have to continuously look at that word mercy and realize it means to be pitied and spared hell. That's what mercy is. You pitied us and spared us from hell unconditionally. You offered it to us. We received it. Hell is not our destiny. What mercy. Satan wants us to think that when we see no answers to prayer, when life goes rotten for us, Lord, that you've walked away. That's satanic. I can understand why Satan believes that. You cast him out of, hell, out of heaven into hell before the foundations of the earth were created. He fell as Lucifer. The morning light separated forever from you in fellowship. He found wickedness within him, as Isaiah tells us. And so he sees you as an unjust and evil God who cast him out of heaven and he hates you. So why wouldn't a legalistic Christian think the same thing? Cast Satan, Lucifer, out of heaven because he was evil and needed to leave. And we partake of evil and don't repent, so there is a break in the fellowship with you, and then we turn around and blame you that you've abandoned us. This is so wicked. When our sin causes a breach and a separation between you and God, Lord, that's our fault, not yours. You always care. And we're like Satan, essentially, when we disown your mercy and think it means nothing. And then turn and walk away from you, thinking you walked away from us. We really, Lord, need a revival to fundamentally examine ourselves here. We really believe we can live the Christian life in our own power? We do, Lord, because we talk to you so little. These passages we looked at, dear Lord, in Hebrews and 1 Peter, show us how foundational prayer is to the life of mercy empowerment we plead your mercy and we pray to you to empower us to resist sin and we pray to you that through your mercy you would unconditionally pierce us with the sword of the word of god when the christian life dies the prayer life dies it is so profoundly clear and simple and it is ironic lord that the more the Spirit of God is quenched, the less prayer we have, and the less we think we need it. Profound delusion.
profound blindness. For we, your children professed, so to speak, who pray very little or not at all, we think that we're okay. And this is a darkness that comes down on the mind of a professed believer that kills the power working for the mercy of you, Lord. The hourglass does not pour out forever. There's a limit to your mercy. And once we quench the Spirit, the Spirit will not work anymore. Maybe we have a sense of urgency to not play with sin. Maybe we have a sense of urgency that mercy is not forever. And if we rebel, you will chastise. And if we still do not repent, you will execute us if we're true believers. We don't want that. That's a failure on a fundamental level, Lord, of the Christian life. We didn't get saved to be executed for disobedience. We got saved to fulfill your will for our lives to the end of our days. Revive us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.